Welcome back to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan. My guest is Jenny Perez, Education Coordinator for the American Botanical Council, or ABC, in Austin, Texas. Jenny has both the formal education and the practical experience of learning about and growing and using herbs, both as a way to promote health and as tasty flavorings for food. The American Botanical Council is a nonprofit organization with the goal of providing accurate information to the public so that we can make educated choices about herbs, medicinal plants, beneficial botanicals, essential oils, and fungi as part of taking care of ourselves and our health. They've been around for more than 30 years. They have a highly regarded peer-reviewed journal called Herbalgram, a website, and an online version of the journal where you can find scientific studies of plants and herbs with details of what they can and in some cases cannot do for us. Jenny, welcome to Mothering Earth. You've had a fascinating journey starting out as a chiropractic assistant and massage therapist to informal learning about herbs and then to the Herbal Sciences Program at Bastyr University in Washington State. While there, you became manager of their extensive gardens, where you had medicinal and food plants from around the world. Can you talk about what you did as garden manager at Bestier? I was the garden manager for seven years and focused a lot on trying to connect the classroom to the garden and the students to having the experience of harvesting plants, growing them, preparing them into medicines, or for the people that were interested in food and dietary therapies, getting the experience of harvesting the vegetables and having them be as fresh as possible while they went and prepared their therapeutic foods and menus. So it was a great experience. Um, And while I was there, I became adjunct faculty in the botanical medicine department, so was able to, again, teach in a classroom and create curriculum that connected students even more to the natural resources we had growing in the the school gardens. And so that's how you eventually That's ended how up eventually here, I became here. Actually even going back further before I knew I wanted to study about medicinal plants and health and nutrition, I was volunteering. I volunteered with Lady Bird Johnson Wildflower Center here in Austin and also volunteered here at the American Botanical Council so long ago as, and I worked in their garden, weeding and helping out. And then also in the education department, filing articles and informative pieces that were available on how people were using plants for medicine and for wellness. So it's ironic that I made a giant circle and came back to where I grew up. Um, I'm not from Austin, but from San Antonio. It's close enough. And I just feel pretty lucky. And it's a little bit ironic that this has come to be. And so I've been the education coordinator here for five years. And some of the roles I provide 
Um, predominantly, as I run their internship program, the American Botanical Council has internships for future healthcare providers. So we currently have a lot of pharmacy students in their final year of school as they're doing their rotations, and they have a phytomedicine rotation available here at, at ABC, and dietitians from Central Texas that are focused on functional foods or the therapeutic properties of foods other than their macronutrients. So we're talking about what makes garlic stinky and what huh. what makes brassicas stinky and how the taste of food can correlate to the pharmacology of how we get some of the health benefits. So I've learned a lot from many wonderful teachers along the way and I feel pretty excited to be part of this thread that's helping continue into the lives of allopathic practitioners who I hope become integrative. That's the goal uh, of just having them be more open, knowing where to find resources for good evidence, and also be open to connecting to nature. You're listening to Mothering Earth. My name is Salwa Khan, and I'm here today with Jenny Perez, and she is Education Coordinator for the American Botanical Council. You were just uh, giving us a little of your background. I was wondering, and you were talking about how uh, the internship program here provides sort of further information on herbs and other plants and their, and their uh, properties. Um, where do you get your students from? So we are open to having interns from wherever they come. However, it's become challenging to accept interns from outside the state of Texas unless they have people they know and stay can stay with. So uh, because we don't have room and board at the moment for international students, et cetera, we tend to serve the University of Texas and Texas State University. Those are where we get our interns, the majority of our interns every academic year. And um, so they're coming from they're, nursing programs. They're coming from dietetics. Med- oh, dietetics. So, di- okay. so many of the students from Texas State University, and even from UT, the dietitians, the future dietitians, come here to learn more about food as medicine. That's what we call th- their curriculum. And the pharmacists are coming, and uh, the what I've called their curriculum is garden apothecary. So, learning more about how plants are full of phytochemicals that can be isolated and turned into drugs and um, active constituents, but to understand that the medicine's in the matrix and that nature has packaged many of these plants in ways where we can use them in their whole form with fewer adverse effects and longer periods of safe use for therapeutic benefits long-term. Can you can you define what is a phytochemical? A phytochemical is a fancy term. Another synonym is bioactive compounds. So in the scientific world, those are terms used that complicate the fact that we're talking about the taste compounds in some cases of foods. Not all phytochemicals have definite tastes, but what I would say is... Um, In the world of dietetics, for example, in food, we talk about carbohydrates, proteins, and fats, but what we are trying to focus on is the the way the plants make what are called secondary metabolites that are therapeutic for the plants themselves. 
They make these compounds to, to deter predators or to invite pollinators, etc., to heal wounds if the tree has been nicked by a predator or a chainsaw, it will bleed resin. That resin becomes its bandage. And we learn through time how some of these plant compounds can be applied to our own health in similar ways. So these are properties of the plant that, be- that become beneficial for Absolutely. us. Absolutely, yes. To, uh, in some cases, to even treat serious diseases. Yes. In some cases, yes. If you think about traditional medicine systems from around the world, um, Plants are the mainstay, whether we're eating them in large quantities or using some that might have more stronger, potentially toxic compounds in lower, smaller doses less frequently to kind of treat something more acute. Um, So I understand uh, at times when you're uh, training uh, pharmacists that some of them may be somewhat skeptical about the use of plants. How do you deal with that? Well, I have to approach that carefully and I think over my five years here it's been a good learning tool for me to find ways to meet them where they're at and remind them that we have co-evolved with plants as humans and that even the derivative of drug means dried plant or dried herb and it has nothing to do with isolated constituents and standardized extracts. That's what they know, um, and they've been taught to be very focused on the mechanism of action and the receptor site. Uh, But what I try to remind them is just, let's come back a few steps from that and take a look at the whole plant and the whole body system and how garlic has over 200 active constituents. And yes, we don't know all of them, and that shouldn't make them skeptical that garlic is not a medicine. It's a food and a medicine that has thousands of years of use. However, we will not know it all. And there has to be some element that they, some way they can find peace with that and know that we will never know it all. And studies are done to kind of explore different constituents and how they react or how they are processed by the body and what effects they might have. However, our our current medical paradigm doesn't address the matrix that the plants bring. It's too complicated. Nature doesn't standardize. We don't worry about how many carotenoids are in the carrots that we pick. (laughs) It's we eat them and we know that they can enhance you know, our eyesight and they are loaded with antioxidants. And what we have learned is more food science related, how if you want to get the carotenoids out of the carrot, get out the olive oil. They're fat soluble. You need a pair. What I've learned is that medicine and herbal herbal constituents, um, a lot of it is about solubility. You can make a tea, which opens the door a little bit to water-soluble compounds. And if you find you need more of a stronger preparation, we go down the line of different solvents with one of the most potent being hydroethanolic extracts, meaning water mixed with a certain percentage of alcohol that matches the solubility of the plant's chemicals to completely unlock that door and let it all come into solution. It's more concentrated, therefore we take less and we have to know how to use it more appropriately because the stronger we make the medicine, 
the more likely we are to have adverse effects. So water is the universal solvent. We always start with teas um, and not to forget that hydrotherapy or herb, herbal baths, herbal foot baths are very therapeutic too. Our skin is one of the largest absorptive and eliminative organs that we need to care for as well. So we can absorb those, these properties through our skin. Absolutely. A rosemary tea is great for uh, stimulating um, mood and memory and feeling alive. And it's also great in a foot bath for stimulating circulation. Diabetic neuropathy could be benef- a beneficial way of right. treating that or uh, enlivening the feet through <laughs> the, we, you know, in, in that particular disease process that's chronic, we really have to think about how we can wake the body up and enliven it with foods and these phytoconstituents that can be absorbed orally or systemically through other ways via skin. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan, and I'm here today with Jenny Perez, who's the Education Coordinator for the American Botanical Council. But right now, it's time for a break. I'm Salwa Khan. You're listening to Mothering Earth, and I'm here with Jenny Perez, who is the Education Coordinator for the American Botanical Council. Um, And earlier, we were talking about uh, how you sort of your journey to the American Botanical Council. Tell us a little about uh, what the American Botanical Council does. Certainly, it's my pleasure. The American Botanical Council was established in 1988, so we are entering into our 30th year as an educational nonprofit, and we are known for our quarterly peer-reviewed, it's a quarterly journal called the Herbal Gram. It's peer-reviewed. We have members and over 70 countries, and it's predominantly due to the Herbalgram Journal and our website, which is a rich archive and ongoing place where we contribute summaries of recently published literature on herbal therapies, herbal medicine, disease processes, and how foods and herbs can help us. We, again, we publish, we, we do these summaries in an unbiased way so we can let people know what has hype and what is real. And um, that's one of the very important things. Where I feel the American Botanical Council does an excellent job of integrating traditional medicine with current scientific modern evidence, where we're trying to become a bridge for the two to be a resource for healthcare professionals, people creating herbal products, as well as consumers that are taking these more and more every year about how to do this safely, what to look for in quality products, or how to find the plants, grow the plants, and be in charge or in control of the own your own quality and the creating these preparations safely at home. So, so it's a great resource for anyone really interested in herbs and their medicinal properties, but also their food properties. I mean, things that we can benefit from just by adding them to our diet. Sure. I would say that um, in our monthly published Herbal eGram newsletter, we focus on, we have a series called Food as Medicine that has been part of the dietetic curriculum for the interns that come from local schools, local colleges, and universities that are studying dietetics. And 
Under my guidance, we work together to focus on a plant that is commonly consumed in our diet, and we talk about where is it from, what part of the world, what plant family is it in, what does it look like, how is it used traditionally, when did it start becoming a food, and now that it's part of our diet, what benefits do we get, and is there any modern evidence that supports that? So we have explored quite a number of different plants, and on our website you could look up food as medicine or go to the herbal egram link and be able to see the history of the food as medicine research papers, and they're also paired with an, a a recipe that we oh, really? have that wow. they're not cre we cite where we get them from and often adapt them uh, but it's again about information and encouragement about how to incorporate this in your diet in a delicious way because without compliance nobody's going to use it if it doesn't taste good um, using it on a regular basis gets a little tougher and with herbs, many people say oh herbs don't work I tried it for three days or two months or it's you have to give them time to do their job because like food herbal medicines themselves are they work slowly but effectively and it's because they're in this matrix that nature put them in where we take them out of the matrix they become drugs and they become right a so little isolate harsher. them yeah. correct so right. if we can hold steady and really try it out for a period of time under the guidance of a healthcare practitioner or an herbalist or having the information be something that the consumer themselves is very passionate about and, and self-studied, et cetera. It's, it's an effort on everyone's behalf to help keep herbs, culinary herbs, medicinal herbs, and healthy foods as a place for where healthcare and wellness can occur. It doesn't have to be in a hospital. It doesn't have to be, it, you know, wellness begins here and now yeah. with, with how we eat every day. Right, right, exactly. So um, now there are hundreds, obviously, of herbal plants, but we've selected a few, or you've selected a few, that we're going to talk about today. And these are plants that have specific value in many cases, both, both as food and medicine. Um, and in some cases, they're valued purely for the medicinal properties. Um, can you talk uh, or, or tell us what are the plants you're going to talk about and go ahead and choose okay. one? Uh, I guess I will begin with holy basil. It's a plant that is very user-friendly and easy to grow for anyone that likes to grow sweet basil for pesto. This one is just as easy to grow. And there, um, so holy basil is, the Latin name is Occamum tenuiflorum formerly known as Occamum Sanctum, and it Sanctum for holy. Uh, it is a highly revered plant in Ayurveda and in the Indian tradition, and recent research has shown that it can be useful as a tea. Again, when water is a universal solvent, there is some safety and user-friendliness involved. So I wanted to definitely begin with that. Um, herbal teas are made with holy basil, that's the leaves, the aerial parts, the above ground parts that are infused in water, can be anxiety relieving, stress relieving, um, also can shorten the duration of colds and flus. And how does this plant work? Um, the scent of it, again, it's in the mint family, which is full of very aromatic plants. The scent of holy basil or tulsi 
smells a lot like clove buds to me and to many people. So the clove bud smell is attributed to a constituent called eugenol. And eugenol, it's, it's very high. It's one of the most, in terms of the amount of phytochemicals in holy basil leaves, eugenol is the predominant one. Mm-hmm. And so many of its pharma- pharmacological actions are attributed to the eugenol content. And having it be calming to the central nervous system. Uh, eugenol, again, if you think about clove buds, history of use in dentistry, uh-huh. it's, it's topically an anesthetic. So in terms of it being anti-infective, we, we see that potential, the potential for having it during the cold and flu season to help shorten the duration of colds and flus because these phytoconstituents are bathing our cells and not all the, not, you know, so microbes and pathogens, things of that nature, they don't necessarily like aromatics. And so sometimes these, if you think about the antimicrobial properties of some of these herbal medicines, especially those that are aromatic, it gives us a veil of protection to some degree. The aromas are telling us something other than this tea will taste good. It, it offers additional protection. And, and this is something that is easy to grow. It's easy to grow. It's an annual. It takes full sun. Um, again, if you're in Texas, that might mean making it have a little bit of shade in the hottest part of day because full sun in Texas is pretty intense. So um, we look for microclimate conditions. And once you get to know some of the plants, what that might mean is if this plant tends to look tired and wilty at 3 to 5 p.m., Next season, you might plant it where there's a shadow cast its way during 3 to 5 p.m. Again, the other thing to keep in mind is plants that are stressed out environmentally tend to make more active compounds as a, oh, as, really? as a reaction. Again, That's interesting. Uh, and when plants are stressed and slightly wilted, the percent water goes down making them more potent because less water means stronger flavor. It's not like I'm saying harvest your wilty, tired plants, (laughs) but in terms of how these plants adapt, they are able to adapt to these climate conditions and survive and be useful. We can do several harvests of holy basil in one season. So you can keep your, we dry the, the leaves, you can keep your tea jar full. Mm-hmm. And go try to make it a goal to go into winter with as many full mason jars of dried holy basil as you can grow. So unlike sweet basil, which we make into pesto, this one's usually taken dried. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm here with Jenny Perez, who is the education coordinator for the American Botanical Council. Uh, and we just finished talking about holy basil or tulsi. Uh, what's our next plant? The next plant we can talk briefly about is calendula. And again, some of these plants have common names, but calendula's common name is also its genus. So calendula, its species is officinalis, and it is in the Asteraceae or sunflower family. And it is also grown as an annual sun-loving. In Texas, we get to grow it twice a year. We planted it in fall, and then we plant it again in spring. So the usable part are the petals of the flowers. And what we've noticed over time in many of the places that I've grown it for medicine is the darker the color of the flower, the more resinous and the more powerful the medicine. So calendula officinalis can be yellow 
or it can also be really dark orange. And what we have found is that the darker the color, the more resins. And when I say resins, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean um, calendula is a great tea. We can make tea with calendula. but and, and again, it's not all about resins. We have plants have different properties, but we tend to kind of think about how what is the all-star property in these plants and how can I work what is the solvent or the medium in which I can coax that out of the plant material and then carry it into a preparation that has some effectiveness. It's a great tea for lymph lymphatics, um, helping the lymph system. However, what you'll see even on the cosmetic and body care aisle is calendula oils and calendula lotions and again because the petals are high in resins uh, we need a fat or an oil to get those out of the plant and make them into um, a herbal calendula preparation can you can you describe the flower yes the flower is so it is um again it's in the sunflower family but it it instead of how it does have ray flowers and disc flowers but it's the ray flowers or the outer petals sort of like a daisy yes exactly daisy light correct and there are different varieties that you can grow of calendula officinalis that give you many petals per head we infuse these dried petals in, a, in an oil, a fixed oil, and it turns that oil dark orange. So again, you can see that something's changed during this process of extraction. And the other thing that's kind of fun for gardeners, as you're picking calendula, at some point it will be difficult to peel your fingers apart from each other because they are like band-aids themselves. These resins begin to um, the, the stickiness makes your fingertips stick together. And in terms of extrapolating that Band-Aid scenario or analogy is that we use it as a vulnerary or a wound healing herb. Oh no, we're out of time for this program. But next time, more herbs, more with Jenny Perez, more useful knowledge from your source for sustainable living news, Mothering Earth. Until then, this is Salwa Khan signing off for Mothering Earth. Mm-hmm.